Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Hey, Miguel Iterate, back here on the Lights Out podcast, and uh, we're waiting on Chris Lytle. We'll see if he jumps back on. We are in deep dive time, so that means the MMA detectives here, Mike. Got another victim lined up, our buddy here. Who we got? We got Cole Miller all the way from Georgia by way of the American top team when he was fighting. But his path to the UFC is incredibly interesting, and it's definitely abnormal. So, Cole, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. So, Miguel, so people can kind of wrap their heads around Cole Miller. You really kind of got to get to know his family. Cole, have you, your brother, and your father all fought on the same fight card before? Yeah, that that's right. We, um, <laughs> you know, my my dad was wanting to kind of get back into doing stuff. Um, you know, and he always wants to do stuff with his kids, and he had kickboxed many, many times. I, I I don't know if he had thirty-five or forty-five kickboxing fights along. I mean, back in the day, a long time ago. Um, after he got out of the, the Marine Corps and stuff like that. And um, me and my brother had just started doing MMA and, and he wanted to kind of, you know, jump on board. And he did a kickboxing bout in Augusta as kind of like a, a comeback type of thing. And then it was that was my final amateur fight. And it was my brother's first amateur fight. I mean, it was what, what's the name of that base for Gordon, maybe it, the one in Augusta. Army, Army base out there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So that kind of gives you a feel of the households that, that Cole Miller grew up in. You have to imagine lots of broken furniture. Um, things were not really settled by a judge, but rather than the front yard. And, um, <laughs> you know, he raised two fantastic fighters. So your dad went by the name Old School. Yeah. So how active was he in the gym when you guys were there? Oh, not at all. I mean, like I, I started training and um, he had come a couple times. I think it was more out of like uh, protection. He's like, who's training my kid kind of, kind of thing, you know? And Hell like, yeah. he, he had some uh, exposure to grappling. When I say exposure, um, he, he knew a guy who knew a guy that, 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 that grappled and, like on a single, a single day had gone and tussled with this, this guy. So that's what I mean when I say exposure, I mean like one, not, not even a class, just like he wanted to get on the mat and, and feel it. Cause he wrestled a little bit. He, he was not a wrestler, but he wrestled, you know, in high school a little bit. Um, but did have a kickboxing background and we were fans of the UFC from the beginning um, just to kind of illustrate where, we found out about it or knew about it or, or whatever it was. So I'd started training and then my dad popped in the gym, like work out a little bit. And um, my brother w- was training, but my, my dad, like he, he fought um, show up like six weeks before each of the fights or four weeks or four sessions. Like he was getting matched with some older guys that, that were, similar weight, you know, and, and the experience level was not 
high. You know what I'm saying? What well-matched promoter, very well matched the card, very appropriately did a good job. And my dad was a fighter for sure with the mentality and the things like that. But you ask what his presence was like in the gym. It, it wasn't really present. Okay. Okay. So you started at team Praxis. Am I correct? That's correct. It was called the Academy of the fighting arts team AFA. And then it had a name change to team Praxis. Okay. So how do you start there? The beginnings, you know, tell us how that comes together. Um, we saw UFC one like live on the cable box. So that was our introduction to MMA. And, and, you know, we were, uh, very, it was like a family type of bonding thing. You know, we, we all thought it was cool and some hyper aggressive kids, as far as growing up in that, uh, power ranger, Ninja turtle watching WWE, like, uh, age generation, me and my brother, we fought a lot in, in the house. Uh, parents were divorced, so my mom had a tough time, you know, I'm, I'm sure dealing dealing with us. And we had another brother also. And, you know, so just a, a crazy type of uh, upbringing. And then we kind of had that interest in May the whole time, always catching the UFC or the Pride card or, you know, whatever was happening. Got into college, got the T1 landline at college and LimeWire and, and download and shoot shoot videos and highlights of like the guys that were they were hardly underground, but what I'm trying to say is like a, uh, a casual would not know the type of guys like Ruben Asado that, that I was downloading videos of. And was, I was a very educated fan at, at the time. And, and uh, you know, I, I had a small job working at this bagel bakery and coffee shop and a guy who had graduated the same high school that I did a couple of years prior to me, he'd come in, he had like a purple eye and like a yellow eye, like, like the black eyes were kind of fading and, you know, I asked him like, who, you know, beat you up? And he was like, oh, I trained mixed martial arts or maybe he said NHB. I, I can't remember, but I knew what it was. Like, it wasn't like he had to explain it to me. I already knew. And he was like, oh, you know what that is? That's dope. You should come train sometime. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come train sometime. It sounded cool. So I went to this, the, the gym was in a gym, like a conditioning unlimited it was like a fitness gym but he just rented he not my buddy he the coach rented a room in the back paid him whatever he paid him per month and it was ran like a club team it was more like a fight club it was not formal classes he didn't have a bjj background he was a good good fighter um but to illustrate that he's like submission grappler meets uh you know kickboxing um and in that era where it was NHB, pancreation, segueing into what people call MMA at the time. And uh, I was there and went in and trained and I was, I was hooked. I already, I already, no one had to like sell me on it. I already knew that I was going to like it. I was very intrigued by the Gracie family in, in college. I had done a report on Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I, I didn't even know it was uh, available to me, um, but I already knew I would like it. That's why I went. And um Hey, can I ask you a question, just to give people some perspective here? November 12, 1993, the first UFC, you said you watched it. How old were you? Right. Uh, 93, I, I guess that would have made me um, nine, eight or nine, eight or nine at the time. So, so yeah, your he, dad was... he literally grew up with this. That's what I wanted people to, to, yeah. to realize. Yeah. Right. 
Right, but UFC was not the introduction to combat sports. We watched the heavyweight pro boxing, or not just heavyweights, but like I'm just that was popular at the time. Heavyweight pro boxing, you know, you had the Tyson and you had the Lennox Lewis, and you know, um, you had De La Hoya, and, and you had, I mean, whoever you want to say, like that that was the guy at the time, and we we, we watched everything from welterweight all the way up. And we were watching, like I said, the pro we anything that had to do with these guys going like this, you know, if, if I don't know what platforms this is going on, but if you could, if uh, you didn't see it, my knuckles are pounding together, you know, and uh, we, we, we did that. That's what we did whenever it was like the summers with my dad or, or whatever, like that was what we did together. That's super you cool. Like yeah, you did. You did raise you in a house of combat sports. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was just what we were all into, you know. Are, are you big on pro wrestling too? Is it, you mentioned it? Yeah. That's yeah. We liked that. It, it was just the the generation. I was born in '84. My brother was born in '87, and we already we were brothers, and we were close enough in age to be fighting over everything, and we liked everything fighting, everything, you know, Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers, and it was called WWF back then. It came WWE, and and you know we wanted to you know we drowned each other in the swimming pool and we, you know, uh, you know, we, 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 we played with, uh, fake guns or nerf guns, or, you know, we were killing each other or, you know, everything was about some type of, you know, Van Damme movie, Steven Seagal movie, and then practicing those moves on one another. And, and, you know, we never did karate, but we wanted to, and we, we just found a way to do it on one another, but yeah, it was like me and my brother, like we couldn't get enough of it. And then when it was time to spend time with dad and we would go see our dad for the summer or every other holiday, we, it was uh, more welcomed in that uh, household. And um, we were going to do it either way, you know, where, yeah, right. whether our mom, mom was trying to suppress it and make that be not so encouraged or our dad wanted to encourage it. It, it was going to be done. So with the UFC, um, you know, we got to, we got to see that. I, I have no idea because when you look at the November timeline, I don't know why we were with our dad. You try to think of it like maybe it was a Thanksgiving. I, I don't know, but we were in Georgia at the time. And at that time, I think that I lived with our mom um, in Virginia or Maryland at the time. But for whatever reason, we were in Georgia at when that happened and we, we caught it, you know, live, you punched in the number on the cable box and, and that that's, you know, we caught that, that first UFC. That's super cool. That's super cool. So your first amateur fight was November 8th, 2003. It's called total velocity in the Valley. Miguel, this right. guy fights in a four man tournament, his first time out. Sure. Why not? <laughs> do you, do you recall that Cole? Yeah, I, I can recall it or I can recall the memory of recalling it, you know, and uh, I've been training like about five months and uh, maybe five and a half months, something like that. And um, I, I got good fast. When I say good, it's relative. You know, um, I think that I'm not any good now. So when I say good, I mean, good enough to fight, had the fighter mentality. Um, and my coach had full confidence in me. So I didn't think that there was any reason for me to not have confidence in me. It wasn't, sometimes people talk about like the nerve wrackingness or the adrenaline. It kind of just seemed like this is what you're doing and this is what you're supposed to do. And this is the outcome. And, and I, I didn't, 
anticipate anything else other than to just go out and fight and, and win, you know? Yeah. You, you know, what's crazy is, you know, you're the way you came out in that first bout, your first opponent was Philip Peterson and you're really long and you know how to use your length and size. Like most people with your type of height and 135 pound weight, it takes a little adjustment for them to kind of grow into their body. And you came right out of the gate, just throwing crazy kicks. Yeah, that was that, you know, that was it. My coach said, go out and head kick them as many times as you can until they're forced to take you down and they're going to want nothing to do with your guard once you land on your back, you know? So that was kind of it. Like, I, you know, in some ways it's kind of how things kind of come full circle and, you know, my natural instincts, like you're talking about, like knowing how to be long and stuff like that. It wasn't until I was taught to fear someone's takedown that I started to not fight long, you know, cause it was like concern from beyond bottom concern from beyond bottom. But, but back then it was just like full confidence, very much like probably what Charles Oliveira feels all the time and kind of like the way that I feel now. Uh, that's kind of how I started feeling. It was like, Oh, I'm just going to go in there, be long, kick this guy in the face. He he's either going to get kicked in the head or he's going to block it and it's going to hurt his arms. And eventually his arms will drop in and a head kick will land or he'll be forced to take me down. And I probably won't even try to stop it. And I'll try and I'll choke everybody. Like that was how I felt. So is this your first combat experience? like in yes. terms of competition. So yeah. the, 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 the thing that I can't really get over, like the hump I have issues getting over is it's your first time in a live combat experience and it's a tournament. So you've got an adrenaline dump, you've got first time jitters. And after no. this first fight, you're going right back to the locker room to get ready for your second match. Yeah. The, there wasn't adrenaline and there wasn't first time jitters. There like, again, like I'm, I'm a very simple minded individual. My coach said, this is what you're going to do and you're going to win. And this is going to be easy. And that's it. So like this guy who has experience in this world is telling me who I trust. He wouldn't put me into fight if he thought I was going to get my ass kicked or make the team look bad or make him. You understand what I'm saying? Like yeah. I'm, a, I'm, young, I'm young. I am impressionable. Ignorance is bliss. I've been not training very long, and, and but I'm not a very confident person. But what I'm trying to illustrate to you is that um, there was a sense of truth, truth coming from my instructor. I took what he said to be true. I had the logic that he would not put me in there to embarrass him. So I just knew that I was going to go in there and do what he said I would do. I was getting results in the training room. And I didn't know that I was from a super, super small team or that we were you know, that there, that it, what it got to be as big as I'll just say American top team. I, I didn't understand the gap from where I was fighting to the highest level of fighting. I didn't understand what it felt like. So I just took, again, what my instructor was saying to be true. So I was in the back, just kind of calm and relaxed. And the, they were having to make me, make me get ramped up or kick the pads hard because I was just kind of waiting. And um, after the one fight, they went and they rushed in and it kind of picked me up. And I just said, put me down, put me down. Uh, my job's not done yet. And I just went to the back to, to wait for the next, the next portion. Okay. So Peters, I mean, so everybody at home, I, Philip Peterson, I watched the fight. He is absolutely a game opponent. He really is. And um, 
you know, Cole goes through him fairly easily. And then he fights a very fast and like a, he fights like a, another tough opponent in Joe Weldon. You know, I mean, these are actually like they're legitimately good first two fight matchups. And to have Full them time. in the same night, like that's that's not an easy thing to accomplish. And do you recall the Joe Weldon fight? Yeah, I mean, the, I think that Philip Peterson had had some prior amateur kickboxing fights, but he I didn't have that. the – he didn't know he did, but he did not I wouldn't have doubt the, that. Gr- yeah, you, the, yeah, the, gr- sure. the ground. But these guys were over 30 years old, and I – again, you just – you're just stupid or ignorant. You're 19. You don't know anybody. You, you trust your coach. And uh, Joel Weldon was just, he was like construction worker strong. You know what yes. I mean? Like I'm just yes. this wire, wiry, wild, wacky, inflatable, two man, skinny, very breakable, breakable person. But like, uh, that was the first time somebody grabbed me. I, yeah, I had strong training partners, but you're in the fight. And this guy's just like stifling strong, that isometric construction worker type of strength. That was the first time I felt like that. That's why it kind of took me a little bit of time to like wiggle into the, the triangle because he was trying to stifle me. But like, I just remember, I can remember or re- remember remembering, you know, that like, he, he didn't smell good and he was very statically strong, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So you, you walk out of there, the winner, it's two fights one night. Your dad must've been beaming. Like he must've been so happy. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, like went out there and did work. My brother was stoked. I, I had uh, my cousin, my cousins and one of my like childhood friends came and a couple of people, but uh, it was, where was it? It was in um, Phoenix city, Alabama. And it, it was kind of funny because the fight was supposed to be in Columbus, Georgia and Phoenix city, Alabama, Columbus are very close to each other. It's like right at the border of Alabama and Georgia. And um, the day before, like the weigh in day, the people who, had agreed to host the event private venue or whatever it was they thought it was like a martial arts tournament you know and i they found out what nhb was and mma was and they they had the opinion that it wasn't christian and so they basically told the promoter to you know this isn't happening so the promoter you know on the back end is frantically trying to find a spot and they found like a park parks and recreation type of gym in uh phoenix city alabama and it you know whatever 250 people there and there were some other really good people on the on the fight card uh master jacare out of atlanta you know he, he had a few of his guys fighting uh rafael austin south he fought on that card you know or was it rafael i think it was hafa it was hafa uh, yeah yeah, and um, and then uh, Ryan Ellison, he was like a, a ranger who was just a, a beast of a guy. He, he fought one of my teammates, and he fought two two times one night. And I can't remember, you know, if Damian Stelly fought on that card or maybe it was just later cards. But he was another one of those savage like ranger guys that was produced by Jacques Array and Sergeant Matt Larson at the time. So, yeah. so Miguel, you've obviously promoted on many different levels. That was a common occurrence in the regional scene, particularly here in the Midwest. 
like you, the promoter would try to keep from the venue what was going on and hopefully right after see everything was fine everything worked out hopefully get another date but if they found out ahead of time i i probably know like 20 off the top of my head events that were canceled because the venue found out what was taking place there so pretty wild pretty wild um you got kind of a quick turnaround february 6 2004 submission fighting open you fight in another four-man tournament the opponent in this is insane though it's daizo ishigi from japan mm-hmm. how does this fight line up how do they bring in okay. somebody for japan to fight you okay so he was supposed to fight junior austin Sal. And my, my teammate, Cliff Hagerman, who's my best friend, he, he recently passed, so rest in peace to him. He was supposed to fight this guy, Brendan Dumont. Now, Brendan Dumont was a – I didn't know him, but, but he was from a small gym called Tai Do. And Tai Do was an Atlanta-ish based school. I, I don't know if it was Norcross or Atlanta or Marriott, whatever, you know, metro Atlanta area. Um, it was like a Aikido slash judo school. And this guy Daizo was not from that gym. He was from Japan. Uh, he was there to help his uncle train for the summer. You know, it was something like that or not summer, but it was February, like you mentioned, but he was there for a short time to help his uncle just train some people in the school, see America for a little bit and then go back home to Japan or, or whatever. And my friend Cliff pulled out and they shifted Junior to fight Brendan Dumont at the 170 weight class. And then they took this guy, Daizo, who was supposed to fight Junior at 155, and they put him in a 145 tournament with me and the other guys, but they just changed the tournament to 155. And for us back then, nobody was like the guys are today. Let's just say like we, nobody's a diva. Nobody's going to say, Oh, a 10 pound difference. Nobody bitched back then, man. Like you just, it was like, Oh, we're, we're just fighting now. You know, they're, they're, it's 10 pounds. What's 10 pounds. I fight guys that are two Oh five in my gym every day. You know, like that was just the mentality to just illustrate the, the, the times. And um, that's how that fight came to be. And the promoter was uh, my manager. And he always wanted to be that guy that, gave his guy the hard fight first. So nobody could say that his guys were uh, taken care of, which I think is fair. You know, maybe you don't give him the easy time. Maybe you don't give him the hard time. You give him what's fair. So uh, we didn't complain. And we knew the guy was a fifth degree judo black belt, fifth down in judo. But, But as far as like what you could find on him, he had never fought in MMA or amateur shoot you couldn't at least find anything if he had done anything it would have been you know in a gym it would not and i'm sure he had had prior training he goes on to later be the king of pancrase you know and fought you know dan hardy and and king of pancrase is a big deal you know i know that today that maybe our our fans out there they don't know what pancrase was they 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 didn't understand that that was a big deal and He goes on later to make those accomplishments at like 170, I think. But he fought and he, we, we went out and, you know, he, I was just going to kick this guy in the head once again, throw bombs to his face and, and I was just going to win. And 
this guy, you know, he, he defended like an initial onslaught and, uh, you know, I, you know, I think I fell down on a kick and got back up or whatever. And, and we engage in a clinch after I try to throw a right cross and he gets double underhooks on me. And I'm just, I'm so amateur, you know, in skill that I'm just like, keep the hips away, keep the hips away. And that it was just in his, uh, wheelhouse. And he just hit me with basic Ogoshi, uh, hip toss. And from there I felt a pressure like I had never felt before, not even from my coach. And it was stifling top pressure. And he just systematically worked his way up the body and, and got a, an arm bar. And I, you know, I, I wasn't going to tap. I was just going to like, let it break. And Forrest Griffin, who, who we were, I was friends with Forrest. Um, he's the, the guest referee and my arm starts popping. He was going to, he, he was kind of deciding whether he was going to step in and stop or not, but my arm starts to just go click, 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 click. And then, you know, I kind of single tap or whatever. And then kind of said, yeah, okay. I agree that this uh, thing is over. And, and I submitted, you know, um, with uh, shame, you know, so I, he is from uh, uh, a gym called SK absolute, which is a powerhouse gym in Japan. He later becomes Pancreas champion. I watched this fight. I look up. I mean, obviously I knew who he was. I look up his record and I'm like, there is absolutely no way you can convince me that this is his first fight. Like he's trying to defense everything. Yeah. And then like, I think now he's part of the the Triforce um, uh, jujitsu affiliation, which is if you guys know, like the sport jujitsu world, Triforce is like a, uh, very well respected academy. I don't know what uh, location or affiliation, you know, is like if he's at the main school or not, but, um, you know, he obviously knows BJJ as well. It's cool, like how we communicated via social media, even in recent years, you know, just kind of like we're not friends or whatever, but it's cool to be able to have like respect for somebody like that. And he looks back and he knew I went to, to you know, some um some level of, of what would be deemed success in the mma world and and we just kind of tip our, the caps to each other type of thing and uh i think that that's cool that's yeah. super cool that's super cool and you you i don't know as a 19 year old kid you know how you handled that but your coach just set up a fight immediately afterward and who, who was managing you at this time my manager was uh matthew waller and my coach was Cam McCark, you know, like still at team practice. And you know, it's funny. You say like, they got me a fight, like right away. I, I literally thought I should fight every month. And I got back in the gym on Monday with my jacked up arm and I just was doing jabs and low kicks. And I had a, a ferocity. I was embarrassed in front of my hometown to submit. And the crowd was sold out at 2000 people or whatever. And the fire marshal was turning people away at the door. Like that. this thing was like, you know, well, this event was very well received in the building that I graduated high school from. It was like, I felt shame for submitting. I should let my arm break. Um, like, and I would, I had such a hatred for myself that I just got back in right away. And we were talking about like a quick turnaround. I felt like it had been an eternity. I felt like they were holding me back for me to reach some level of maturity, but I was just like a pit bull that should have been let off the leash to just, just go ham on somebody, you know, a whole village. <laughs> right. 
right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. your quick turnaround, Miguel, another four-man tournament, King of the Ring. Um, this is for a title. I think Warren Verner was the promoter. Am I correct? I can't say. I can't say. Okay. It was so I, I've been fighting at like 150, 155, but I was like probably a 45, or I was walking around at like 150, 153 if I was bulking. And I cut from 53 to 135 pounds for a same day weigh-in. So I woke up that day and I cut the 135 on the dot for championship fight and then fought that night twice. So daddy's fight, daddy's fight team, um, very well known, obviously, sends one of his students, Nick Catone, at you. So Nick ends his career at 10 and 3, always just on the bubble of being on the big show, but a very respected opponent through his career, for sure. Yeah. And he was like a, you know, we knew that he was like a Naga champ and, and like back then that, that, that was like, he was the whatever Naga expert national champ. Like he went to the nationals and that, that just kind of meant something. I'm not saying that he was, you know, honey, yeah, yeah, or whatever, but, but with my limited experience, again, I'm less than a year of training, you know, and this guy is winning these types of divisions and things. It's like, there was some level of like, i I felt like my team almost thought or accepted that I could be submitted. And I had like a chip on my shoulder, you know? And so I cut all that weight. I had a hard time with the rehydration. I went in there and just, you know, sprinted at him and threw a flying knee and got taken down and tapped him out hella fast. You know, it's like an emotional win. You know, like I was like, I had that first like breakthrough of like tears, like of like emotion, you know, I, I'd never really felt that or had any type of thing. And I know that that was from that feeling of uh, that they, they, some people on my team already were kind of preparing for the loss. And I was just more of like a, not like a fuck you, but like, oh, maybe I, maybe in some type of way, they, their opinion of me made me have that opinion of me. And I would have had that, like, I'm going to show them. And then having shown them and, and ultimately showing me, you know, that I, that I could uh, do that. And then I could tap a guy that was well-respected as a grappler, you know? Well, I think sometimes you need to motivate yourself and some people, they need different things to do that. You know, some people it's lots of praise and lots of praise. Other people it's, you know, swearing at themselves. I think it was another yourself proving something that you already knew about yourself to other people. Um, yeah. And you, know, you said it was kind of an emotional fight for you. Is that difficult to go back in there for another round of fighting after you've had that, that kind of emotional, just that, that damn break? You know, I think the whole, the whole situation, again, 18 pounds for somebody who has such a small body fat percentage and doing it the wrong way. And, and just then fighting like a few hours later for free, but with pro rules and no protective equipment for a traveling to Virginia in a van that my mom let me borrow all for a ringside belt that was worth $75 like 
this is what we're fucking doing. This is what we're doing. Like there was no man, like I know I'm not normal and I'm not trying to make myself sound superior to people, but at the time the mentality was you're already fucking dead. So just go out there and fight fighters fight. This is what we do. You can't uh, look for the easy out. You want the hard shit. You want the hard shit. Fucking give it to me. So like we kind of craved it. Like, so you're saying like, was it hard to do this? Like, um, maybe, but not to me. Yeah. You know, that's so there was hard. a lot of stuff that was hard to me. There was many, many things that were very hard to me, but not things that were about mental toughness. I was mentally tough. You know, I, I, can you imagine if you would have wrestled in high school? Man, I, I probably wouldn't have got it. Yeah. Like I would have been mentally tough. I, I probably would have just sucked. You know what I mean? Like I see it or it would have taken me a long time to be good. Like people talk about uh, their nightmare was guys that were built like me, but then you ask guys that were built like me, how long it took them before they finally got comfortable with their body or figured out how to wrestle. And it wasn't like a two year thing. It was like, guys took a long time. They lost they didn't win a match for two or three years, but, but then they started to get it. You know, I think I wouldn't, have, I, I didn't even discover wrestling until too late, but I probably could have been uh, good if I had eight years of wrestling, you know, but if I would like wrestled a couple years in high school, I would have been one of those win- winless kids. Cause those guys that are built like Chad, Mendes just would have been, yeah, they just would have had, had the, the ease to find my hips, you know? Well, now, let me ask you, too. You mentioned earlier in the interview that now, in retrospect, you see the level between where you were and really the top of the game. But, you know, Cam McCarg is, I mean, you look at his sure dog record or whatever, and he's got under 10 fights, but he was very, very serious in the day. You know what I mean? It's like you had good people there. You mentioned Forrest and stuff. When did you start to realize, you know, that you could hang with, with top shelf guys? Right. I knew they were good that, but I didn't know that there was other things out there. I knew that cam could tap, tap anybody. I'm not saying like he could sweep or pass guard or, you know, I won't say he's the most complete guy, but I knew he was a good fighter. And then I was cross training, uh, the singer brothers, uh, that ran a hardcore gym Rory. and, um, in Rory and Adam Stinger. Yep. And, and uh, Forrest trained with them at the time. And Forrest was the only guy that I knew who wanted to train twice a day. So when I wasn't going to college or whatever, I would drive the hour and a half to Athens and me and Forrest would be doing sprints on the football field, or we would go unlock hardcore gym and me and him would grapple each other. And again, about a hundred pound difference between Forrest and I, and he worked me over, but like, that was again, part of the culture. Like nobody said, Oh, I got to train with my, like top team now, not saying the guys are not the same mindset. It's just different now with the exposure. You've got 30 guys from, you know, 135 to 155. No, you know, beggars weren't, you couldn't be choosers, you know, like you had to work in the room with what you had. The big guys didn't make excuses and the small guys didn't make excuses. You got tapped out or you got fucked up and you had to get better. And that was it. 
And so Forrest and I would train, you know, in the daytime and then at nighttime, maybe I would train with the smaller guys that were part of hardcore gym, but I, I was grateful that they always uh, welcomed me, you know, in, in their, in their home, you know, uh, but that was, that was part of it. But to answer the question, like at what point I knew that I could hang, I always knew I could hang because my coach said that you could, you could hang. Like I knew that this guy was good and what he said was gospel. Um, and then when I started to be able to hang with him in the gym, when Charles McCarthy came down and he was telling me that I had a lot of potential and he was a guy that came from FFA freestyle fight camp with the, um, Avalon brothers. And he was telling me, we got these guys you need to come train with Georgie Mosby doll. Um, and, 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 uh, what's his name? Enrique Coco. Like he was like, these guys are like your size. And he's like, honestly, I think they can, you know, beat you, but you can hang with them. And they are the thing on the grappling circuit. Uh, you should come train cross train with them sometimes too. And so like, he started to take me to see, what I thought was the the next level and I could see that it was within reach. So that, that was kind of the, the time around Oh four, maybe late Oh four, mid Oh four. Um, and we're coming up on that right now. So yeah, it's right around there. And McCarthy was already there for my first fight in Oh three, but I think what went mid Oh four <laughs> was when I took my first trip to Miami um, and where I got to cross from him, he later exposed me to top team when he made the change. Um, but he introduced me to Marcos and Dave and Jorge Masvidal um, and Enrico Coco and um, Efren Ruiz and uh, Mike Cardoso. Some of these guys that were uh, part of that FFA submission wrestling team. So you also like June 25th, 2004, you fought on Melvin Gillard's old manager's organization, Battle of New Orleans, against Gavin Murray. What was that experience like? Because Melvin has told me, we haven't had him on a podcast yet, but some just like cartoonishly funny stories in regards to that event. You know, I, uh, I can only imagine this place, the main event, that was the, it was a bar. And people were smoking in the bar and they're like right there on this in-ground ring. And then sometimes they had an area with a cage and Gavin Murray was 16 years old and I'm like 20. And I just came off of winning the King of the Ring. And I, you know, I was nervous for that fight because I was like, what type of 16 year old would take a fight against me? You know, I'm like, this kid has to be a submission fighting guru or he must have the craziest come to, come to find out this guy what was the promoter's name what was it Dude, joe, I, joe joe ancona because joe, that's his, it because the fight team was the anaconda or something like that but um come to find out this guy was just feeding his own guys to the wolves but I trained harder for this fight than I thought was possible because in my mind, I had a little bit of this like fear that this kid would either be submission wrestling wizard or he'd be an incredible boxer or something like that. You know, it was just poor, poor Gavin Murray. He was just getting fed by his manager and coach, you know what I mean? Like, and I don't know what illegal activities were happening behind the scenes. I can only predict a few, you know, within this team. I don't know if it was a 
laundering type of thing, but I'm like, they had a fighter dormitory uh, upstairs and, and they had this sports bar type of thing where fights were happening downstairs and very um, shady looking individuals that were attending these types of things. Like there was maybe some uh, type of dealing of who knows what, you know, I, I, I can I can speculate, but I would never say that for sure this or that was going on. But so, so I just yeah, Gillard, yeah. he said to me, he's like, yeah, there were some money issues. I had to go with my uncle. Essentially, Melvin went there with somebody with a couple guns and, you know, got a little bit of money. What they thought was was theirs. And yeah, just crazy craziness. Yeah, I spoke to Melvin. You know, he would. He was the top team for a minute and, and I had seen him on some shows along the way where, whether he cornered a teammate on a show, I fought, you know, and we were always uh, very cool with one another, like uh, just mutual respect. And, and um, I always liked Melvin. I always did, but he, we talked about, you know, that place. And there was like, I'll, I'll have, when you guys have him on, he'll have to be the one that, that shares the story. But uh, yeah, which, yeah, it was, like you said, cartoonish. I think that's the most appropriate adjective for what yeah. was happening so, probably in, in his region at the time. Yeah. Well, we're going to have Melvin on in the next couple of months. So, you know, you're kind of rolling them out and you, you stopped Gavin by KO. You're back at the submission fighting open. You, okay. How, first off, how tall are you? I'm six one, uh, so you're, six one and a half or whatever, but, but under six, two for sure. So you're just under 6'2", and you're fighting at 135 pounds. So well, I fought I fought at 35. Sorry, to cut you off. I fought at 35 only once. Okay. That was the uh, king of the ring. The other times I was fighting at 55, or I was fighting at 45, or I was walking at 45, fighting at 55. I think I fought at 50, 150. This little kind of I'm like 145, but we got some other guys, and we're fighting at these little catch weights, but. I fought at the SFO in another four-man tournament, but I only fought once that night because the uh, the finalists on the other end um, received an injury. Okay, um, you're not running into people your your size, generally speaking. That's but correct. Anthony, I'm undersized, fighting at a higher weight. Yes. Yeah. You, well, you're you're also championship height at 145. Like at 145, that's that's world title height. And Anthony Lapitra, he is as tall as you. And when you look at that that. fight, he is he is a specimen as well. Like using his legs. He's jacked. Dude. He's jacked. Like his upper body had like bodybuilders like uh, attribute. His lower body was super skinny. But he was like pretty close to my height. That was the first time I ever saw anything like that. All right. I think you derailed. Like whatever happened, you you obviously won that fight. I this kid really had a future on MMA. When you see how he does against you, all he needs is just a little bit of polish, a little bit more time. He had a future in MMA, but he fights one more time, gets a win, and never fights again. And I think it was what took place in your bout with him. Maybe, maybe, you know, and maybe it was, you know, we had all these, like, uh, a lot of the teams back then, it was, I don't want to overhype the word underground, but it wasn't what it is now with the structured training. A lot of these guys were learning from guys with a singular background or they're going to a one gym to do one thing, another gym to another. And you're, 
there's no pay in the bills. And who can say, maybe, maybe he started a family or maybe he needed to work a, you know, a construction job, or maybe it was a, a mental breakdown that he had that happened in the fight. And that was a loss of confidence. But at the time, nobody ever thought there could be a future, including myself in fighting. Who was making money back then? Maybe Tito, or T, Tito Ortiz, um, uh, Rico Rodriguez, maybe, you know, like, uh, got, you know, uh, Minotaur, Noguera, Krokop, these guys in pride. But we're talking about nobody that looks like me. You know, that's for damn sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it's incredible watching that fight. And when I'm watching you on top and I'm seeing him work his legs, trying to, he's being you against you. And right. I'm like, yeah, very flexible. Damn. Um, no, a hell of a fight. So you rattle off armbar victory over him, triangle over Ashley Croft, triangle over Charles Nutt. You're, you're wrecking people in like, you haven't really hit the second round yet. Right. That's correct. Yeah. I'm just kind and, of breezing uh, through, breezing, breezing through. But no, actually, I, you know, I had seen a three round fight. I had a good, my good friend that I told you that had the, the black eyes in the, the bagel shop that, uh, yeah. We fought on a card. It's not on my record because they called it a quote exhibition. His opponent got injured and mine fucking no showed. And we, we, we both trained for the fight and he was a 185 walk around weight fighting at 170. And I was a 145 or we fought each other on this small show in Valdosta that had a patch in the center canvas of the ring where we had some other teammates fighting on that night. And we fought each other and we just made a gentleman's agreement that he would give me time to tap to a heel hook, which he was good at. And I promised him I would not knee him in the face because I was like uh, very set in that camp. But if you, I have the footage. If you watched it, you realize we are not pulling punches. It's called an exhibition because it was the multiple weight classes. We couldn't, it would not be an official amateur record bout on that ISCF sanctioning body. But we fought, we really straight up fought each other and it went the full distance. And if it goes that distance, you just call it a draw because it's an exhibition. That's cool. a fight that wasn't a fight. That's <clears throat> correct. So, but I did see that three round right there, but you're right on everyone else that uh, I fought. I got finished the one time in the first round, everyone else I finished in the first round. Yeah. Quick, quick too. Like very little adversity. So you went seven, one as an amateur and you, and you turned pro eight, to 13. Eight, eight, eight and one, eight and one as an amateur. Okay. I found seven. I absolutely believe you. <laughs> eight I, and one as an was, amateur. Uh, you're refreshing my memory. So it was Philip Peterson and Joel Weldon. I lost to Daiso Ishigi. I had the King of the Ring with the, uh, where I fought twice, where I fought Nick Catone and Blake Romano. And then I fought Gavin Murray. So we're at five and one. And then I fought uh, uh, Anthony LaPetra, then Ashley Croft and Charles Nutt. That's your eight right there. That is eight. You're right. Yeah. Eight and one. Eight and, and one. Then and I then had the, fought... the draw with my teammates. So eight, one and one. That's cool. You fought full throttle to June 3rd, 2005. Um, Harris Norwood. He's from Eagle Combat Systems. Super athletic guy. Um, your size is nightmarish for your opponents. Yeah, he, he's a kickboxer, real good kickboxer. 
he's done like this the Shidakan tournament that's like part full contact karate, part kickboxing, part MMA. Fought a lot of MMA fights. He lost to Daizo Ashigi also on a on the he was the second fight that night that I lost to Daizo. Uh experienced guy, even if you look at like what he ended up doing, very like uh journeyman. And and when I say journeyman, I mean what journeyman actually means not these guys will like in nowadays they'll be like a guy in the ufc is a journeyman like that's not a, what journeyman means no a journeyman for you guys that, that know but for maybe you have viewers who are more modern casual friends journeyman meant it was a guy that would take the journey to fight anywhere against anybody anytime day or night as long as there was some purse money didn't matter how good or how bad the guy was. He was the guy that you could, that would take the call. And it wasn't meant as a disrespect. It was meant to say out of respect and give a, an honor. Yeah. He was a journeyman. He might be a 45 and 35 guy, but he was a guy that, that he would answer the call. That's what journeyman means. And that's what Harris Norwood was. Okay. Just to give uh, an illustration on this. I actually match made Harris a couple of times down here in Costa Rica. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was going to ask you in specific about him. I think Mike got to it first, though. You talked about fighting long, and that's really all you knew. Now, now Harris is pretty long. You know, he's going to be about uh, – stature-wise, was he about your size? And, and what are you learning at yeah. this point? Is he he's like 5'10". Okay. He's like 5'10", 5'11", but more muscular – because he's a man and I'm still a, a undeveloped, you know, I'm, I'm post teen, but I just haven't quite got my, my growth spurt yet. And, uh, but he's fights longer than me. You know, he was the first real true striker that I faced. He calf kicked me a couple of times and this cat calf kick, everybody talks about now, Mr. George Allen and Mr. Gary Brown, I think of Eagle, uh, they were they were doing calf kicks back then, and, and calf kick was an old technique to them back then. It was I think I remember George Allen, who I ended up cross-training after I fought Harris with. I think he was saying that this was a kick from a martial art called bondo, and a, this is a bondo kick. And Harris kicked me with this a couple times, and if, then you can see in the fight, I just say fuck this, and I basically just sprint him to initiate a clinch and then work the ground fight where I knew I was superior, but I, I went through a phase, this phase, I was getting some confidence after I had turned pro and I was, you know, or at that final amateur phase, I was starting to get where I felt like I was a decent boxer. Now, of course, that's with the training partners I had at the time who were not necessarily boxers, but I was really starting to feel some form of confidence. And Harris never really let me get to where I would touch him with my hands, with these calf kicks he was throwing. So um, that was the first exposure where, where like, you're not fighting as long as you think you are. I got out of the fight quick with just a couple bruises on the, on the calf, but was already, that was already a valuable lesson that was gained and kind of let me know you are um, a little bit more vulnerable and penetrable than you might think. You, you blew me away there with, with, the George Allen name too. I, I mean, that's an old school name from the nineties for sure. And, and uh, you're right. One of those rugged stand-up guys that was definitely more than just a little box, you know, a little, some guys had boxing. He was more than a boxer. He was a, almost like a tie box for the time. He was like what we would call a tie box, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And people in the Georgia MMA scene, Oh guys, like George Allen, everything like this, this is the guy that, 
He was one of the true underground fighters, true NHB guys, went on to train the next generation. And now he's on the state athletic commission refereeing and like doing what he can. He's always stayed a part of that martial arts scene and mixed martial arts scene. And, uh, and even if the fighters of today, like don't know, they owe what they're doing now to guys like that, who didn't just fight and stop fighting, but help pave the way to help show these guys, like, this is what it means to not only this is how you train, but this is how you behave with honor and, and true warrior mentality. He would show up to events with his gear bag, with that old school, maybe somebody will pull out and I can jump in and do it. Like that's, that's like, that's the guys that I grew up respecting and wanted to have that same type of mentality. I always pictured myself as having like a hundred something fights, kind of like a, you know, like a road warrior, because I, again, I knew that there was no money in, in fighting. I wanted to fight until somebody killed me in the cage. And I kind of got that diehard warrior mentality from guys like my coach Cam and guys like George Allen and guys who were truly hard. Like Joe Merritt, do you remember Joe Merritt? I know, I remember the name. I don't, I don't know. He who was that is. him and he, George and, and Joe Merritt used to come up to Indiana and fight on our show. And I, I kind of associate them together. But George, definitely, hats off to him. Hello. Yeah. Right. Hell yeah. So, what was your relationship like with the promoter Brent, Mo, uh, Brett Moses? We, we are friends now. Uh, back then, he, he was just a. Uh, a promote like promoter fighter relationship. I I'm sure he thought I was a, a good young kid or, or whatever and saw some talent and potential. Brett was a great promoter. That's another guy that Georgia owes a huge thing to took up all the financial risk was promoting MMA in a heavy popular time, obviously. And uh, he was putting on like putting guys like Rafael Austin, Sal, uh, uh, Diego Lima, Matt Brown, um, uh, myself, my brother, Brian Bowles, uh, Jeff Bedard. Um, you guys had a cool scene, man. I think bro, it's he brought in guys to kick our asses to show that we were there with the next level, man. Like, a lot of guys will only put local guys on local guys. Why? Because they know that that will make the most money, right? That when, because he was coming up in this era where it's like people were going to come watch the stars who were the ticket sellers. I was not a ticket seller. I was just a, a talented young local fighter who he would put on his cards. Um, but he would bring in guys to make competitive, competitive fights, man, against the local talent but all that was doing was giving us shine to show that in these other regional areas that the that the that georgia had a good stable of of crew you understand what i'm saying like he put rory singer on the show he put uh forrest griffin on the show like this guy brett was putting on our guys to fight anyone from anywhere else you know and i got to meet some ufc guys and and guys that you know were were fighting, you know, later on. And then also who had fought before because Brett was bringing these guys on or teammates of these guys on it. It was just a really cool time and a cool scene, the Atlanta fight scene uh, that Brett was really the, the king of. And later me and Brett go to become friends, but it was always, a res I think, a mutual respect. Just fighter, 
promoter thing. And he and I grew close over the years. And he's one of the guys I still consider a friend. I still maintain a relationship and I'm always down with whatever he's doing. And, and I owe him a lot. So he had, I think it was Diego Lima. He had him and Matt Brown fight in a main event at one of his bouts. Yeah. Yes. And Diego Sariva, another local guy that fought in the UFC later. Like we had a rich uh, talent pool, but yeah. Uh, um, oh, uh, Luigi Firavanti fought Tim Stout, who is a Tennessee fighter, but that South <laughs> Southern thing, you know, Luigi, Luigi Firavanti came in and fought like uh, Jorge Masvidal fought Rafael Austin Stout um, on a show. Like what, what, like, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had a knack for picking talent for sure. Um, so you mentioned the definition of journeymen. And sometimes journeymen become front runners. They're front runners initially, and then they just can't get over a certain hump and they become journeymen. And we're saying that with the utmost respect when I mentioned your next opponent's name. July 15, 2005, full throttle three. They brought in Chris Mickle, who he's so deceiving. We've had... Clay Guida and Jeremy Stevens on this program, both of them have said he's in the top two toughest opponents they've ever had. Tough, right? Tough and gritty. You know, I, I would have made easy work of him if my good friend, guest referee, Forrest, Forrest Griffin, Griffin, would not have fucked this up. Like, so I put this guy in a triangle. I scooped the leg with the deep angle, and it's night fucking night this thing's about to be over and this guy uh, chris mickle tripods up and while i'm under hooking the knee drops the knee on my face i'm still holding on like this is not a thing like i'm about to put him to sleep and forrest stop 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 stands the guy up gives him the warning or the one point puts us back and I'm like, what are you doing? I had him in a trial and I can see the, oh shit in Forrest's face. And he, and he's like, back up, back up. And he's like, fight. It's like, he made, he like, he was like, oh shit, I fucked up, but let's not talk about it. Let's just, you guys got to keep going. It, <laughs> you know? And it's like, and, and that's, and like, he never stood you up again. He never, no. that was it. He was done for that fight. He was letting you guys go. <laughs> Well, he stood us up for the whole like warning or the point like yeah, you. But that was it. That was that was a foul. But it's like, no, dude, he fouled me. If he escapes, like we'll talk about it. But he was in the submission. It wasn't like he dropped the knee and my legs start to unlock or or like my legs busted open and I'm holding my nose. Like he drops the knee. I'm still under hooking the leg. Drop five more knees, motherfucker. Do all the illegal shit you want to do. Like this is to the death. Like I'm going to hold on to this. But he opened me up and, and stood us up. And it's like, you got to do what, what the guy says, you know, but, and, oh, and that led to on a hyperextended arm that I had in the guard. And he reels it back in, Mickle. Mickle throws a knee and it, it cracked a couple of my ribs. So that was like the adversity that I had to go through, you know, in that fight. Um, it was still one-sided for the most part, as far as like him being on the defense or on the run for my attacks. But why that fight went all the way to the third round was after that triangle choke escape, at some point I, oh, I popped Chris Mickle's arms, click, 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 click. And then he like reeled it back in and kneed me in the ribs from the, the arm bar stack. 
And that crack in the ribs, that was the internal adversity I had to kind of overcome in that battle. But Chris Mickle, strong guy, uh, tough guy, gritty guy, like got put in all the shit, had a never say die attitude till he said say die. When I got him in the triangle choke and he tapped out in the third. He was just defense, defense, defense. Um, he had karate pants on. I don't, I think that was a part of his strategy. I never knew was I've seen the guy fight at least a dozen times. And at this point he's 10, two and two with wins over three people that would go on to fight in the UFC. Like Chris yeah, Mickle, three. Yeah. Yeah. It, it comes out in gi pants, but his hoodie had his wrestling, uh, uh, high school on it. Isn't that hilarious? They came I don't out know what that pants. was about. I think it was probably a, a like this is still back when people would play mind games and it was probably in some type of way I can imagine looking back now that he wanted to get in my head to make me think like this is going to be an easy fight with a karate guy. You know, may, maybe I can only speculate uh, uh, if I ever saw him, I, I might ask him that, you know, um, there was no <laughs> beef between he, he and I. So I could, I could maybe uh, talk to him about something like that. You know, you know, it's crazy. It's like John Strawn is his opponent or his teammate. So is Ted Worthington. Um, Iowa kind of, gets dumped on a lot because there's a lot of fly-by-night shows and tons of padded records. All you got to do is look up Travis Fulton to kind of get the gist of what was happening in Iowa. But you had pockets of really tough guys like uh, Jeremy Stevens. We mentioned him earlier, Josh Neer. And then you had John Strawn, Ted Worthington, who's a journeyman, and Chris Mickle. Like, he was no joke, man. That was a hard fight. Yeah. Yeah, very physically demanding. Um that was that first fight for me that, you know, I know I had gone with my, my, my buddy and, I, and we were not pulling punches, but it, it was different. Um, it was more like spar hard sparring with, uh, you know, no protective equipment on, but when you fight someone and you're like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker, this is to the death. Like that's a different type of uh, violent intent. And he was that first guy that took me past uh, that first round where I got a good look at what it felt like to have the sweat coming down your face and to just, you feel like you're starting to maybe get tired. And instead you just say, nah, like I'm going to keep going attack, attack, attack until you die or until they do that. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you have a follow-up with Tim Honeycutt. I've met this guy several times. What a, what a wacko. Dude, go ahead. I, okay, I, I'm glad. I'm glad. Go ahead. But just like the whole thing, like, you know, he would, he fought lots of good guys because he was like, how do you say it, man? Can, he was cannon fodder, you know, like, you know, there's some other things that you could come up with too that, but cannon fodder was it, you know? And, uh, but he would talk like, I fought so and so, I fought so and so, like, he was. Like he was on the cusp of making it to the UFC. This is like the way he talks. And, um, you know, then he's, then he's out back, like, you know, with his crazy uh, uh, spouse or whatever, smoking cigs and, and just like, you know, doing whatever he's doing. And just like, I, I, I couldn't understand. It's like the, it's like, guy, you're one or two and 17 or, He's Owens like 17 or something like okay. that. Okay, whatever he is, it's just like, how are you like talking like this? And, and why did 
some people keep showing up because they just got a warrior spirit. You know what I'm saying? They, they, they're just not with the right with the right team or maybe they're beasts in the gym, but under the lights, they just can't put there's maybe some stage, yeah. stage fright or, or something. But then there's guys that's just like, you don't belong here, dog. Like, <laughs> what are you, like it's almost like maybe like you need to see a, a brain trauma specialist to maybe rewire you or maybe you're, you're something off about you, you know, and, and that's kind of more the, the, you know, how some states implemented, like, uh, you know, like they will suspend guys like that, that we're like, you're no longer welcome to fight in our state out of protection for you because you are a liability to the state you're fighting in. That's because of guys like that. Yeah. So Miguel, how many times as a promoter, like that, that fight was 23 seconds long. It was a KO. And I, like I said, I've seen Tim fight regionally, two, three times. He's the guy that would yeah. go and find you right after the fight. Like you saw what just took place. And then he would go, you know, I didn't have a real good outing, but I had him like in this part, that part, and this part. And you're like, it was like 15 yeah. seconds long. All right. Well, yeah, you're I was winning until he got me. Yeah. I was winning yeah, the whole like, until he got me. <laughs> and then he would demand another fight. How about a rematch? Like it didn't even go 30 seconds. Yeah. But you know, and I'm like, no, nah. I mean, it's just, he was just out there. I, I, I was smoking I, I, cigarettes. A guy like that. Not, not a yeah. smoker, I think, but similar. Is, My uh, wife's Shannon, the corner person. Shannon Rich is the guy that did that to me. Fought <laughs> a guy in karate pants, lost to a guy in karate pants, and then proceeded to tell me he was winning the fight up until the moment he lost. And I was just like, okay, thank you. You know, it's <laughs> good. You're, you're, you're always winning, winning until you're losing. That's another funny thing about MMA guys who were like, let's run it back or rematches. Like I was winning until I was losing. When are you not winning until you're losing? You know, Cole, and this is way off topic. Whenever I read, like he was partially clothed. Well, I've got a shirt on. I'm partially clothed. Like not 100% of my body is clothed. You know, it's <laughs> it's just weird. Like when you read shit like that. Um, so Josh Odom is your next bout. So November 4, 2005. Here's the thing about Josh Odom. One, he's one and one against you at this time. I've seen him fight live twice with the IFL. And he's impossible to finish incredibly tough and he only fought tough guys so you look at Odom and he's got a six and six record at the end of his career it is nowhere near telling of what a savage fighter Josh was yeah he's good good athlete and uh real good athlete you can tell that he trained with a good <laughs> a, a good school good group of guys very uh, I'd, I'd just say well-rounded educated fighter like you didn't nobody was gonna maybe put him in anything that he not seen, you know, like he was, he, he'd been there in, in the gym with the guys that knew what, what was going on in a respected team at the time. Um, me, uh, of course, it's just like the fighter's outlook. Like I, I really believe if I was in the right headspace and I was training, like I should have been, I would have, I think I would have not only won, but like finished him. I, this is at that time where I'm, at the point where me and my coach are very like I win some, he wins some. And I'm, I was a little young and dumb and a little too big for my britches and kind of trying to tell maybe some of my teammates like, Hey, you shouldn't let him have full control over you. You should be fighting more. And I wasn't trying to create a dissension in the team, but I, maybe I recognized that there was some, 
cultish type of elements to the team at the time. And that our coach was trying to, you know, own, have some type of ownership or control and suppress maybe the, the growth at the, at the reasoning so he could just be the man. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? I don't know his perspective, but I could see elements of that. And instead of, you know, being a man and just kind of uh, speaking, um, you know, just being straight up with the coach and just trying to find out what it was before. I was like, Hey man, like I'm going to fight over here. I got you a fight or, or whatever, you know, like that was kind of what was going on. So there was some frustration within the team and, and um, me and my coach, we were just on the outs. We were, and I didn't yeah, feel good about, I didn't feel things. good about being, I was not kicked out, but I didn't feel good about being the team because I could feel the uh, tension in the atmosphere. And uh, I think I trained twice, two days for that fight, you know, and, and I still went all three rounds, you know, but like why maybe you can see like the level of attack attack against Chris Mickle. And then you kind of see me fighting Odom, although Odom was a very talented fighter. Uh, and maybe he would have, you know, maybe if I was attack attacking all this great shape, maybe I would have got over attacky and ran into a punch and would have knocked me out. I know that that could have happened too, you know, but uh, I did only train two uh, days for that fight. And the reason was because of the the team thing that was going on, you know. But, yeah. but Josh was ve- was very good. You you are right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, for sure. But I, I didn't feel any kind of way about losing that fight. Like I was like, I trained twice for this fight. This guy's, you know, uh, majority decisions me, and um, yeah, like I'll just uh, I'll go get a new team or I'll start training for the next one and I'll fucking kill everybody. I was not like the way that I felt when Daiso beat me. I didn't feel um, super sad about it. I was like, I know I lost because I didn't train for it. That's it, you know. Is this when you moved to the American Top Team? What's the next fight? David Love. That's probably it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So David Love, I uh Charles McCarthy had gone to top team and he invited me out to top team to see it. So I my my manager now is Charles McCarthy, and he uh he got me a fight in Key West. So I flew to Miami or Lauderdale, wherever I flew into, and McCarthy picks me up at the airport and takes me to top team for like three or four days, the, the week of the fight. And I'm not sparring because it's like, uh, it's the week of the fight and I'm not yeah. part of the team yet, but they, he's trying to recruit me and putting it in my ear and I want to go. And it's like, wow, this guy over here is fighting in pride. This guy's fighting in K1. This guy's fighting in the UFC. You, like I knew what top team was. No one had to introduce me who, Laborio or Jorge Santiago or these guys who were the, were fighting. Literally, I was watching all the MMA shows. I knew who everyone was. And uh, but I got some pad time with Howard Davis Jr. I was off on the side grappling with you know Chris Manuel, who was very talented uh, MMA fighter who fought in WC later, uh, a lighter weight class guy. And I just really saw that was my first exposure to there is so much more you don't even fucking know 
you want to talk about like red pill, you know, like I had a lot of confidence. I was winning rounds against my coach. I knew that there was a ceiling. I knew that Charles McCarthy was telling me that I thought FFA was the pinnacle of grappling. He was telling me that when he got to top team, that it was even more different. And that was coming from a guy who I knew was on another level of grappling. And I couldn't fathom it. And I had to go see it. And when I saw it, I was just like, holy hell, like this is where I got to be. And so I trained that week there, just got some sessions in and, and uh, they were, they were very welcoming, you know, they were, I won't say a lot. Yeah. I won't say once you got to the team and you're on the mat and you're actually sparring with the guys that that is very welcoming. But as far as like, you're very welcome to be in the facility or roll with the guys or Howard, let me hit the pads. Cause, because somebody with the team was vouching for me, you understand Um, that in that way, it was very welcoming. Um, And I went and fought David Love. I was not top team yet. But that was my I, – I had been in the doors at top team, and I fought David Love, another Midwest guy, a journeyman, a guy, out, again, out of respect, that said, and I, I TKO slash KO him. Okay. I need well, to face. We need to talk about this fight. So David Love at this time is three and five. He's fresh out of prison. He's somebody that's just doesn't want to go back, wants to do something with himself. He's a little bit older. After this fight, first off – he tears apart your leg with calf kicks from the beginning. Yeah. He actually broke my leg later on. He broke it. And like, I didn't know I'm just fighting. I'm like, cause every time I can feel that it's hurting and that you want to kind of not put weight on it, but I'm just like, no bitch, you know, you're going to walk forward. So David Love, so people that don't know, he also became probably the top paid 145 pounder in the entire world when he was fighting for Miguel at Bodog fight. Mm. Yeah. What did I pay him? He fought my. He was competing like 20, 20, 25, 25, 30, 30. And at the time, that was that was the pinnacle for one. Yeah. That's not true. No, that's not true. Then you better talk to Chad Wagner. Uh, He fought Mike Brown, right? He fought Mike Brown on Bodog or or, or WC. Where did he fight Mike Brown? Uh, probably fought him for me. I, I was a matchmaker yeah. for all that. And I know, I know who made George Masvidal was making 25 grand a fight for me. Yeah. And he so, fought, uh, really? he fought Eve Edwards. Yeah. George, George, fought, I mean, George, I gave him a four or $500,000 deal from where he came from. And I got, he, if you look at the next four fights, it included Eve Edwards and included people like that. So, yeah. He was forced to do work. Yeah. Dave, I didn't have that money for 145, and Dave really – I love him, but I was on that level. I may have thrown him five five grand for a fight. That's not what I was God. told. Yeah, well – I wish – Some creative writing about that. <laughs> that's why people – that's why I guess, you know, if there's talk like that going around, that like overspending stuff, there's usually a thought behind every spend expenditure. You know, I may be right or wrong on the guy, but, yeah, that's that's – Dave's manager, uh, exaggerating. Huh. Yeah, he up. was tough. Either way, the guy fought world class talent. Cole, obviously, you being one of them. He's three and five at the time. Takes your loss and goes on a hell of a run. Like he legitimately was. 
at one point top 10 in the world at 145. It's just he was limited on a skill set. And you expose yeah. that. Yeah, I think the grappling was just the issue. Like he was the real strong guy. And and first fight I ever felt slow. And not because I was sluggish, meaning that I'm just not fast, you know. Like Dave Love, like he hit me with like those calf kicks when he when uh when I was walking in and then uh blitzed me with some uppercuts when I tried to clinch uh, on him and I had an improper uh, head placement on the tie clinch. I had too much space. Uh, but man strength again i still had not i'm still looking for the man strength you know what i mean like some people just you, you don't get it or you get it too late you know and um and he had it and he was a man and i'm just like a baby faced long-haired bean pole but just like to the death like i just always had that mentality he, he and then like after the after the, that fight, I go on back in the gym. I train like two, three, four weeks. And I go to the, my doctor at the time, a guy, uh, Dr. John Keating, who, uh, um, big supporter of the, uh, Georgia fight scene. He was putting on some, maybe some, uh, underground fights back in the day. And then he was the promoter of that, the martial arts reality, super fighting event, the Mars, yeah, event, Mars. the Henzo Gracie. Yeah. So he had a lot to do with developing an early glove too. Oh, okay, cool. Good to know. Um, but he was always very generous with, with his time. And uh, I went to go see him and he was like, yeah, you've got a, a fracture in your leg. <laughs> Are you serious? He's like, yeah. He's like, he's like, yeah, your, your fibula is broken. That's, that's, that's why this bruise won't go away. It's not a bruise. It's, it's a fracture in your leg. So Dave, Dave Love broke my leg and I just kept marching forward. He, in that fight, all right, the fight game is about hammers and nails, obviously. And yeah. up until this point, you haven't really shown that you were a really good nail. And David Love, you took some heavy punches. Oh, to the head, yeah, and the calf kicks. Like, I already knew I was like this because of how we had been training in my gym at team practice. Like, again, <clears throat> big guys facing little guys. And – Big glove training was more rare than small glove training in my gym. Like you put the little foam sentry slip on shin guards. That was your shin support. Like we would just kick each other's fucking asses all the time. Like, so not to say that fighting in the gym was the same as it was in the fight, but it was more close then than you see it being nowadays. And that, and I'm not saying that then was better than now. But I'm just letting you know, like the mentality that eh, quote every day was a fight, like in the gym. That's what it was like back then. So I think having that exposure helped out. Right around this time, the Ultimate Fighter kind of picked from certain camps. Like they just certain camps they would call, "Who do you got? This is the weight, and we'll take whoever it is you have." Rob Khan and Gracie Tampa fell into that category. Um, they put like six guys on that show. And February okay. 11, 2006, you fight a Rob Khan student, Jarek Bex, um, who's five and three at the time. And yeah. that Gracie Tampa, anybody coming out of there is legit at this time. He would, I would, this is my first fight uh, at top team. I kind of had smoothed things over with my coach that, that was at Cam McCard at team practice. And um, uh, we knew that I was moving to Florida 
full 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 time. But I would I had still made some uh, training trips, you know, to Georgia, and I kind of co-represented for that fight and that fight only. Um, but yeah, that was a again not an easy fight because no fight is easy with all the work you put in. But it was a quick fight that I was very lucky to uh, get out of unscathed and make quick work of a of a guy who was more skilled than I made him look. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Dwayne Shelton, which is your next bout, were you shocked that it took you so long to finish him? Yeah, okay, so th- this is the, where – Like a week my, later, it's in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, this is where um, my – exposure to the UFC comes from. So Charles McCarthy had been trying to get me in the UFC and they weren't sure what they were going to do with a 55 division. If they were going to delete it or it had been deleted and they brought it back, but they, I don't remember exactly where it was with the, with the thing. And so he'd been trying to talk to Joe Silva, just, just get this guy in the show. And they're like, ah, we, you know, at 55 and I'm not a 55, but once again, I'm walking around at like 152 pounds, but I, I fight anybody, whatever. And, um, I get this opportunity to fight Dwayne Shelton in Richmond, Virginia, which is where Joe Silva lives. And they were trying to, Charles was trying to get me to fight on felony fights um, or some other type of thing that would get me some uh, back then viral clout, you know, like if I was going to fight on felony fights against a felon and bare knuckle, you know, like, you know, around the, whoever was doing that thing, the Tapout crew or whoever, I can't remember, you know, like we were trying to find something big like this and an opportunity came to fight Dwayne Shelton real quick turnaround. And um, he was 0-2 as a pro, but had had a good amateur kickboxing background and MMA background. Um, but he had fought like Dean Thomas and Tough somebody guy. else. Was yeah. it Jeremy Stevens and Dean Thomas or Dean Thomas and it was two UFC vets that he fought in his opening pro fights. And uh, I went down, I was like, oh yeah. Dean was like, hell yeah. Just uh, take this guy down or guard pull on him. Fuck him up. You know, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be an easy fight. And that's when like, I saw another guy who he just didn't have any quit in him. You know, he was, he dropped me first time I ever dropped uh, I, I wouldn't, I didn't fall backwards. Like, uh, I was storming him forward, like the, like a bum rush. And that's what bums do bums, bum rush. And he clipped me with a counter right or left hook, whatever it was. And I hit a knee and like, he's standing over me throwing big hooks. He belly to belly to belly me like twice. And, uh, again, I just didn't have any man strength. And I, I still was just a boy fighting in there with men, very mature men, and I, I had no strength. My, what made me hard to fight was that I fought so much. Man, what are we, we two years in my career that we're talking about right now? And I got like 17 fights or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you fight a lot. Like I just unrelenting pace. And this is what I want to do is fight. And uh, I, that's how I, I was always so composed. And this is, this is where experience can help. You know, sometimes experience can hurt, but um, but uh, it was helpful here. And uh, again, that mental toughness. And I'm like, I won't stop. And I end up mounting him several times. Uh, Rick McCoy, very talented, Virginia, old school guy. He's the ref and 
I'd met him when I did the King of the Ring tournament as, a, at the, as an amateur in Virginia Beach that we had mentioned earlier. He had, he had stood us up a couple of times because Dwayne Shelton was so strong that from the bottom mount where he does like the double underhook grab, like I'm doing the cross facing, I'm doing all the stuff that should work, but I'm just so weak compared and he's so strong. I couldn't break it and I'm on mount and he, he stood us up because of no action and we're in Dwayne Shelton's hometown and the boos and the jeers and, and the crowd. It's like he's at some point, you got to stand the guys up. So he stands us up. I end up, whatever, getting mount, getting some takedown. I, you know, at some point in the third round, I'm just dropping bombs on him with that, just no quit from mount. And he turns belly down and, and, and I get the rear naked choke. But mysteriously, the first two rounds are recorded, but the third round, where the missing third round go, there's no evidence <laughs> of Cole just like putting the beat down on, only this, the, the struggle of the uh, grappling and the striking in the, in, the, in the first too, you know. Yeah. And that would have been how his that, promoter. That, yeah, there was, was a conversation also, between him and the promoter going, yeah, why don't we just put it out there, just leave off the third round. <laughs> the promoter was his manager. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, no, go I ahead. get to do a, I get to do a post-fight interview you know, I told, you know, Mr. Joe Silva, I know you're in attendance out there. I'd love to talk to you after the fight. I know it wasn't like my best work, but I'll never quit. And I know I got things to work on, but I hope to, to be in the UFC one day. Kind of, kind of like that, you know. And I shook his hand. I got to talk to him. He's like, we'll be in touch, you know. And that was where it's hard to get noticed back then if you're, if you can't be seen. And, and how are you going to be seen? Full contact fighter newsletter, you know. Uh, somebody with some traction on the, the underground forum, or they actually get eyes on or a videotape, like a beat, you know, here's my, my audition tape kind of thing. Um, or unless you actually fight in the hometown of the UFC's matchmaker and he's there to watch the hometown guy, but you end up, you know, you know, pulling the old switcheroo on him. <laughs> That's cool. Well, Rick McCoy, you mentioned Rick McCoy was the ref too. He's another one like, kind of, in my head, kind of like a Cam McCord guy, like a, a high skill yeah, dude that didn't fight a lot, but like much respect from the old days. Yeah, yeah, he's a guy I still, I still get to keep in touch with, and his fighters do good too. And you know, Virginia probably owes him a lot, a lot for the development of the scene sure. and, and stepping yeah. it up. Yeah. Mike, so, he was he was second in in the running to fight Matt Hume for his last fight. I. I Went with Payne Peters, but it was going to – I was going to – I thought Rick McCoy was better than Payne Peters, to be honest, with respect to both of them. I was going to try to slip him, Rick, if it didn't work out, but it's all history. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It's back to Cam, yeah. back to Cole. <laughs> Sorry. Back to Cole Miller. Yeah. So, Cole, you, you start traveling at this time, and like you said, it's hard to get eyes on people. So you start traveling and fighting in other people's hometowns, which is the easiest way to get your record beat up. Like, if you're not the real deal, that's how you hey. wind up with a lopsided record. Yeah, one, one second, and then I'm going to need to use the restroom for just a moment. But another funny thing about this fight with Dwayne Shelton was I was offered, like, 300 and 300 to fight Dwayne Shelton, and I could bring a corner, or I could fly there by myself and make, like, 800 and 800 with no cornermen. All and right, you know what I picked? I just went there by myself with no corner. And I 
I, uh, I picked this guy that was in the crowd before the fight. And I said, Hey man, uh, can you hold my, my bottle of water and just tell me every, when it's three minutes left, two minutes left, one minutes left in the round. Can you do that for me? <laughs> yeah. I'll leave you guys with that. And let me just use the restroom. Real quick. All right, cool. 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 All right, Miguel, you and I got a phone to pick, bro. What's David that? Love. Really? Mike, if Chael Sonnen was making 25 grand, George Masvidal, Nick Thompson, Eddie Alvarez were making 25 grand. David Love is not in that equation. All right, let me tell you something. Do you know how many people I've told that to? You know, you and I talk almost daily. Or I shouldn't say we talk multiple times daily. I have told that story for at least a decade. Minimum. Yeah, you, know, you, you, you I, I bet you Dave would tell you the truth. You know, you, you've got to corroborate. You know, Chad forgets or, you know, maybe there was a reason for him to try to, you know, make make it look like something it wasn't like, but no. Okay. No, I'm and, telling, and little like, side note, little side note for listeners at home. David Love was in jail for a little bit. It's he, he grew up in a really, really rough area um, in Indianapolis. After he got out of prison, joins a gym, completely turns his life around. He is now a teacher of mixed martial arts in Indiana, still giving back to the community. It's, it's truly a story where, where somebody overcame incredible odds, made some mistakes in life, and learned from them and is now you know, pushing, him, pushing themselves. Yeah, no, no, no. He's, if I could have paid him that, I would have. If, if it came down to just, like, personal need and, and personal like, like, I mean, he's a really hardworking, easy guy to work with. I would have easily given if I had that money to give away, but I, it's not like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> it wasn't right. like, you know, I mean, here I can tell you some of the reward guys like, okay. Uh, Aaron Riley. Got Pickett? No, Pickett was making two to three grand. He got the one of the bonuses. Yeah. But that that's because he did the social media thing and blew everyone out, but that could have been anybody. I'm going to contract that. I'll tell you, Aaron Riley, I gave him 15 grand. To fight Alvarez. And that was a big raise for him. And then and the guys I I, I like Chael, George, Nick Thompson. Um the there guy. were a couple there were a couple others. Anyway, he's back. So they, but those Sorry. guys got got four fight deals, hundred K. So Colt, Miguel used to uh head up Bodog fight as well as Euphoria, the MFC right. shows. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's it. So like we whenever we get guests on here, we always half the guests have either fought for him or, you know, had some sort of interaction. Um, So you're, you're kind of uh, jet setting to other people's cities, easiest way to get a beat up record. And they put you up against a pretty big ticket seller in Texas, Vince Libardi. Yeah. And uh, he was the first guy that like straight up mean bugged me. Um, in the uh the <laughs> but i was all about it you know like you, you think you're hard let's find out who's hard tomorrow you know and um <laughs> kicked him in the fucking head and triangle choked him or guillotine him or whatever it was, yeah, you know. dude it was 16 seconds yeah. it was 16 Just, seconds it, yeah, and he was completely I mean, unconscious yeah and that that guy ended up killing um sam vasquez in the ring a couple years later you know, yeah. Rest in peace, Sam Vasquez. Wow. Yeah. 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 
it's wild. It's wild, like the twists and turns that the MMA world goes down and the people you encounter that you normally would never be connected in any other way, you know, like yourself in Diazo in Japan. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's just incredible. So you go to Texas, you, I'm, I, you make a brief appearance there because it's 16 seconds long and um, you're back fighting in Georgia again at full throttle. You know, that, that promoter, like you said, he, he, he did you salads. He got you a Joe Germain, um, another 36-second guillotine. Iowa guy, and that guy would talk so much shit. He was like, he was like, but calm. Like, he was in the, we were in the, we were signing contracts on, like, weigh-in day or whatever. And he's like, I'm going to elbow this motherfucker's face into the fucking canvas. <laughs> I was like, I'm just, I'm right across the table. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> really? That's the one thing I, I remember about that. Like, I like to tell, like, a little bit of the backstory. Like, the, the fights are cool. You know, you just get. You no, know, that's funny. Well, that was a thing, quick one. But... I mean, you're, you're, you're still on your less than one round uh, routine. Yeah. And you go on to Diesel Fighting Championship, Sal Mitchell. I mean, you're back in Texas. Um, he's from the Academy in Minnesota. Greg Nelson student. Strong Greco-Roman yep. wrestler. Um, yeah, this I, I thought this was actually your first. Uh, it was one of many tests. Chris Mickle was your first test, but this was definitely one of those humps that you had to climb. Yeah, a, a Greg Nelson guy and um, a Muay Thai guy. I know that later on he was part of that. Uh, I think he was part of the MTV Life, a true, uh, true life, a Muay Thai fighter. Of course, who did they showcase? I think it was was it Gina Carano or. Rob McCullough was showcased and somebody else was showcased. Blonde, like he was blonde from my area. She's from the Crystal Lake area. Okay. But whatever, well, whatever. It was like Rob McCullough and somebody else were the ones that actually got the TV time, but I guess it was several other people that, that uh, were part of this um, thing. You know what I mean? And he, he actually went and did that, like the bare knuckle uh, tie fight too. I thought that was cool, but yeah, yeah he's record Roman wrestler. Yeah. 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 Um, super tough cat. Um, you moved to Florida right at this time, I believe. I was already in Florida. Uh, I was, so in you would just go back and fight at home. That's correct. Because I already had the good relationship with, uh, Brett Moses, but I was already in Florida by the time I fought Jared Bex. Wow. You take a last-minute fight against the Shudo world champion, Takaishi Inoue. Yeah. How does that come about? I was I was a blue belt at the time. Um, and what's my record now? Like, as a pro, 8-1, yeah. 9-1, something yeah. like that. And Inoue, yes. and Inoue is 9-1 and one as well. And he's world champ. He already had uh, beat like Pequeno Noguero or, or somebody like that. Maybe he goes to be him later, but be Antonio Carvalho or somebody who was already shooting Carvalho, world champ. Which yeah. is, he's a fight right before yeah. he Yeah. So, and Carvalho was world champ before, you know, and so he beat Carvalho. He's world champ. And uh, that's like the pinnacle for what I was trying to do. I was trying to make it to Shudo. At this point, the UFC was cool. I'd already given up on it because it was like, to me again, so much time had gone by when it's like no time at all. But like, I'm like, fuck that. I'm going to go fight for Shudo. I'm going to be Shudo world champ. This was like the first like confidence boosting fight. It was like on five or seven days notice. I, I didn't have a passport. I Who fell got off? It. I don't know. 
I couldn't tell you. I have no sure. clue. Um, mm-hmm. But they called top team. Uh, what's her name? Um, she's the like the go between. Um, uh, Matoko. Ma- 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 Matoko. So Matoko uh, is the go between for Shudo. She's talking talking to uh, Laborio or or who or to Lambert whoever, and they're talking to McCarthy. Then McCarthy. A lot of in between kind of. Uh, conversation and Matoko says this is the price that's it but they were asking like top team like who's good but not too good and they know they're like oh we got a blue belt who's like eight and one and they're like blue belt perfect and like I was only a blue belt because I had just started training true Brazilian jiu-jitsu like in the gi I I, I was a white belt for like a month. I was a blue belt for like 10 months and I was a pro belt for a year. I, I like went from white to brown in like two and a half years because <laughs> I had had the, the prior submission grappling experience with cam, but not jujitsu, but I wanted to be jujitsu black belt. So, but like, they're like blue belt. Perfect. And I went what in there and started like, I think I got one and one or, or though 2000 flat, maybe 2000 flat to fight the world champ and I got paid cash. And uh, it was like, this is the price. There's no negotiating. This is the price. And so I was like, cool. That's and the most seven days out, you're, find someone else. It's the most money I'd ever been paid. And I was like, and I was fighting the world champ, but in a non-title fight, I was like, I'm going to go fuck this guy up. And then I'm going to get my title fight after I mop him up. And um, I mean, this is still back when they, they like now Shudo has modern MMA rules, but back then, if you got a standing knockdown, they give you a 10, eight or standing eight count. And then if you got them in a submission, they would call catch. And that would be like a, a knockdown equivalent of a knockdown. Um, and I got him in a triangle with no catch called. And I, at one point I cracked him and he fell backward, but the You're rope right. kept him up. Like, I was I was beating this dude up on the feet. I was just da da da. I was just socking him up. You can see me like uh like whipping my hands around in the circle like some Roy Jones Jr. type shit. And I'm just touching him and piecing him up. He didn't touch me on the feet because I've been working with Howard Davis a lot and who taught me the art of boxing. And I started to finally come into my own after making a lot of mis- tall guy mistakes. I started finally coming to my own, and I was like, oh, he's about to get pieced up. And I know what tall guys do because I'm a tall guy. They rely on being the tall guy. So you got a 5'10 world champion there against a new six foot one guy who knew how to use his range. As far as for, for striking, knew how to use his range. I still had not figured out how to stop takedowns yet. But, um, but I was piecing him up. And then on the ground, I had some close submission attempts. And then, uh, you know, he wins the decision, of course. I thought it should have been a draw. Um, Especially with the educated referee. Yeah, but they weren't calling. They weren't calling catches on you. So yeah, the table no, was tilted. A hundred percent. So whatever, I take the loss. But it, it, let me explain this. Whenever there's a close submission in judo, the referee will signal a C with one of their hands, and it essentially means deduct a point from the person that's in the less dominant position. They do it with knockdowns and almost uh, people that are almost submitted. So right. it's it's like a ten eight round. Right. And I wasn't getting no love from that. And the the ropes held him up on that knockdown I was, like, about to get. And it was just, like, 
But after that fight, he uh, deviated my septum. So my nose looked perfect. But on the inside of my face with the ground and pound punches, um, I, I got a broken nose. I had some blood draining in my throat. But uh, I was beaming like ear to ear smiles after that because on the way home, it was like you belong at the world class top echelon of 145 pound fighters, you know. And so like that for that at that moment, it was confidence full send because I knew I was in a, a point of growth and, and I'm like the Diaz brothers in a lot of ways. There are many similarities between us. And for me, I was like, all you motherfuckers are just going to decision me. I know that in the fight to the death, I would tap all y'all out. If there wasn't that, it was like to the finish, I'm going to come out on top every time. So you keep winning these little hometown Japanese judges decisions. When I finally hit my, my, my mark, I'm going to be beating all of y'all, you know, but because I was so competitive with the world champ for my weight class at the time, who was ranked, I think it was like number one or number two, like in all organizations, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, who's who was the the people back then it was like brian garrity was a top 145 or a couple other guys at 45 but it was uh pequeño nogira and and uh uh to the lion takeshi in, in a way you know how was the travel how was the jet lag because now you're you're i mean you lost the fight you're owing two against fighters from japan i wasn't sure if it was just like their style of jiu-jitsu um but no, because these these two guys were different. Like the guy when I fought uh, Daiso, I just wasn't ready for him. I okay. wasn't ready, you know. Like he was leaps and bounds beyond what my capabilities were, and that's just it. Uh, with Takeshi, maybe there was some jet lag. I don't know. Like I I I never made an excuse back then. You know the you know it's the deck is stacked against you, but you go there knowing that. So it's like don't make any excuses. Like go in there, either kill him or know that they're going to raise his hand. But I was like, just, you know, oh, are you, oh, and you get flown in the, you land at like 10 PM and, and or you get in your hotel at like 10 PM and the weight cut starts the next morning, you know, like there's nothing that's being done. That's uh, for you. You, know you get I mean? bloated uh, too by the elevation and travel. I don't know. I, I've heard that, but I, I just, I didn't know that stuff. I, you just go in and you make the way you, you just, did, you just do your job. Did you, this was your first big trip, wasn't it? Yeah. So, well, any culture shock? I mean, you, uh, you obviously seem like a grounded guy now, but like when you were a kid, you know, it's a long way from Tokyo to that Alabama, Georgia border. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, like I was kind of culture shocked. It, I had like a tourist mindset. Yeah. You know, like I'm taking pictures on the, whatever the, 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 the roll camera, the disposable style. And then <laughs> I think I had a little, I had a little, um, Motorola phone with it, you know, pixelated photos to couple on that. But, uh, I'm so happy, just happy to be there. You know, now I know I'm going to kick his ass, but I am happy to be there, you know, and I'm, I'm taking it all in and I'm like, this is so cool. Like, I know I'm not in pride because I'm a small guy, but like, I, I'm like, man, this is like, this is as big as it gets, you know, and you're not, I'm not being treated like royalty at all. You know, I'm just, I'm brought in five hours before weight cut time starts. And, you know, you kind of come in here to go in there and it's like, get in and get out. But I thought that that was probably the coolest, uh, the coolest trip. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the mistake that that they may have made um, picking yourself is you're in shape because you're fight, you're training full time. Yeah. And just they're hoping for somebody a little out of shape. There we go. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think so, too. And I think that they didn't think that I was going to be as skilled I was to fight the champ. And they just needed something done last minute because this guy was the poster child for their organization at the time as being champ. And uh, they just didn't think I'd be as good as I was. You know, I thought I think that that guy also expected that, too, because a guy that was known as a boxer who knocked people out. I outboxed this guy and he got by on taking me down and keeping me on my back and making sure that there was no way I could stall him out. That, stall right, it. You know, yeah. 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 That was, dude, it was a fun fight to watch. Um, your next bout is for AFC 19, October 21st, 2006. Yeah. I, you know, I meant to drop something when we talked about David Love. Are you aware that American top team member Carlos Diaz was in David Love's corner? Was he for that fight? He was for that fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't re- I don't remember that. Uh, it, it, Carlos didn't it, either. I sound the I brain. Be- yeah. I believe you. If we, if you have footage, of, I believe you. Oh wait, that's because I was not top team yet. That yes. was where I got invited to top team that week, yes. and I was there that week. But I was, but I was Charles McCarthy's guy. But I was not top team. But, uh, but yeah, I get it. So, so in in uh, Chad Wagner, who Carlos Diaz, Chad Wagner, and myself. We would jet set to multiple different countries, helping Miguel out at his different events. So we all knew each other. And it was like, yeah, I need somebody to help. And I'm like, I called Carlos Diaz. I go, did you train David Love against Cole Miller? He's like, no. He's like, I, I don't think I was there. I sent him the footage. He's like, holy shit, I was cornering him. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. That is great. Yeah. So that's I think great. he was the matchmaker for AFC at this time. They bring in a 33-7 and seven John Strong from Iowa. Um, yep. October 21st, 2006. Yeah. Tough guy. Um, it's so funny. Like, you know, some guys capabilities, I end up taking him down. He (laughs) ends up sweeping me with an omoplata. Like if like, just knowing like what our backgrounds are and like where he came up and maybe like his wrestling background and just the, the style of MMA that's fought in the Midwest. And then knowing what I do, you would have been, you'd be like, no, John took him down and Cole swept him with the, with Omoplata. I, I thought that was funny, you know, but like yeah. when I got put on my back, I was like, okay, t- time to get this guy out of here. Just super quick triangle. Your, your size and length was nightmarish for, for your opponents. And yeah. right around this time, like I'm, I'm a Midwest guy, I'm Chicago. So anything in Indianapolis, I was in either Minnesota, Ohio, Indianapolis, Iowa, Indiana, you know, and Wisconsin around this time. And there was a lot of phone calls being made about yourself stating he just needs one more fight. He's going to the UFC. He's going to the UFC. And they flew you into Indianapolis Legends of Fighting 10 to fight Josh, Josh Souter. I was actually at this fight. Yeah, that was a cool experience. Like uh, my brother had had a relationship with um the corkle nah, yeah that but he was the promoter what is the my camp name? mike 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 camp mike camp yeah. he loved my brother man loved my brother and uh and um 
what was what was uh was it sean mccork what was his brother what scott McC no scott, scott. sean yeah. okay yeah and so like that was for yeah but uh um, they did a ton of fights all, you know, man yeah you know and i had and i had already had a couple fights where i was supposed to fight for them where they didn't happen like i was going to fight jamil or jaleel jamil masu yeah i was gonna fight him that didn't future happen. wec I, veteran i fought josh souter one of george Grigel's guys and then i was supposed to fight dustin hazlett and i got picked up on tough but but yeah like that area had some some dope dope guys and the fight with josh souter was um He was a guy who was probably the most well-rounded fighter I have ever fought. He had good boxing, that powerhouse style boxing. He could wrestle and he was pro belt in jiu-jitsu. I was pro belt in jiu-jitsu. And uh, he, he was a, a dog. He was very game, very game. And I remember like thinking that I lost that fight, like after the fight, like I kind of had some, you know, woe is me i don't deserve this thing and then like i go back and watch the fight and i can see the non-stop attacking and i can see where he's like let's say he gets a takedown but it's a takedown out of getting punched and kicked or it's uh elbows in or it's a stand back up out of him getting put in some type of submission so i can see like how i got the nod like after watching it on tape but i could see the guys making either decision depending on like how educated you are as a referee. If you want to say that top is, is the top guy always wins, no matter what I lacerated his eyebrow from the bottom. It's pretty cool. Uh, it's actually a technique that I would do. I'd have the collar and I put like the foot on the hip and the shin on the inside of the bicep. And it's common for a guy to roll their shoulder back to the inside to just put themselves back in a complete full guard. And when they have to make that shoulder roll, I just let go and I, I throw the bow. Uh, and I just remember that that was one cool thing I had done in that fight. That doesn't look, you wouldn't even notice it on, on camera. Again, no one notices anything the bottom guy does on camera unless it's uh, putting somebody out in a full submission. But it was a cool little ground and pound technique that I was doing at the time. So, Sutter, you, you win a split decision, and you yeah. get called to the ultimate fighter. So, Brian Garrity's been on this program. He's a pretty good friend of mine. Like, I've known the guy for almost 20 years now. And Love that guy. He would always say, like, when he got back from the house, I go, hey, who'd you, you know, you can't tell us the winner. Who'd you hang out with? He goes, Nate Diaz, Cole Miller, and myself. We just stuck with each other, and we didn't really mess with anyone else. Bro, man, and what a great guy, funny guy, a lot of personality, the kind of guy that just uh, nobody was happy to be there, okay? We're <laughs> he all, was. Sure, he I'm was sure. the only one. Well, a lot of people, they didn't want to be there, but they needed to be there, and the, the no contact with the outside world and everyone's feeling down, Brian would always bring you back up. You know what I mean? Like, so he was, uh, he was dope in that way and a very good fighter. And I told him we've had conversations about this after the fact, you know, you get the full contact fighter newsletter and the top five and, and guys like, like in the country of the world, Brian Garrity's on that list, the ultimate fighter for him to get the shine that he needed and for people to know how good he was probably needed to have been three years or four years earlier and he could have won the sh won the show you know or or if 145 would have been a division of um notoriety where people wanted to see the guys maybe two years prior 
he probably could have been the guy, you know, title contender minimally. Yeah. It, it, it's, 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 and it, it, that conversation didn't happen out of, uh, you know, mm, it wasn't my time. It wasn't like that. It's just like, you know, man, like if things were just a little different, you know, this would have happened, you know, like it was, I think it was me that brought it up, not him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you go to the show, you fight Alan Barubi, another Rob Khan guy. I think it's the third Rob Khan student that you had fought at this point. Yeah, I never put that together. Yeah. I never knew, knew that till, till you said it just now. Yeah. So you get through Barubi, 226 triangle. Um, and then you do life changing. Life changing. Yeah, yeah, but beating Baruby was life changing. Like it was just like, you know that if you win a fight, you know you'll be fighting on the finale. You know, like if you win the first fight, they'll you know maybe you won't um, maybe you lose the next fight, but you might not be obviously in the finale, but you'll be on the finale card. So you'll actually have an official UFC fight. If you win your first fight on tough. And it's like, that was huge to just be, get that win over, over Ruby. And then Joe Lozon fight that happened. It was pretty cool. Little grappling fight. Got a cool kick back. Take got to, he gets on top, trade some positions. He puts me up against the wall, you know, then that there, that illegal elbow on the back of the head un- unintentional. It just happened. I don't really remember it. That, this is all just from like watching the footage. Uh, I definitely had a, a concussion. Um, they come out, you don't look so hot, get fucked up. <laughs> and then uh, that's that, you know? Yeah. So that's the, uh, that is your entire walk up into the UFC. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, would you mind fielding another question? So you got a little bit more time? I'm here for you guys. Oh, my man. All right, Frank Bishop. Um, he's, he's, see, your name came out of three people's mouths. Brian Garrity calls me up because he, he listens. He goes, you gotta get Cole. You gotta get Cole. Carlos Diaz. I'm like, Hey man, give me some American top team guys that, you know, are free to talk. You know, they got a lot of personality. He's like, dude, top of my list, Cole Miller, Frank Bishop as well. You mentioned you're obviously a historian like ourselves. How important to the scene, the mixed martial arts scene were the contributions of, of Frank Bishop in your opinion? You mean Frank is cool? Frank is cool, baby. <laughs> Frank, Frank is cool. Yeah, dude. I mean, like, he was one of the – he's a die, like, ride or die hardcore gym guy. You know, he's always there with, like, the Singer Brothers and, um, and uh, you know, Forrest Griffin and, and always supported that team, but also supported just, like, the MMA scene and making stuff happen, being the manager for those guys. And then on the, the underground, Frank is cool – you know, a huge contributor just for MMA in general, like just you talk about like being a historian, like if you know who Frank is cool is like, you, you know, that he was one of the real ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like when I first saw his screen name, I'm like, oh, this dude's got to be a dick. And then I'm like, I talked to him like he's actually legitimately really cool. <laughs> he's Frank is cool. like, he's actually Frank a really cool, cool guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, an American top team. Were you there yeah. when uh, Tiago when Tiago Santos barricaded himself in the uh, in the gym? Yeah, I mean, I was on site. Um, <laughs> hold on, I'm, I was on site at Top Team from November December of '05 all the way till uh, '17. Um, 
but he wow. barricaded himself himself in his house, not like okay. in the gym, but, but yeah, he barricades himself in his home. But yeah, I was in South Florida when all that happened. Yeah. What was it like having him in the gym? Man, like I like, first off, I liked him and I liked a lot of people that were not liked or had, you know, a cloud around him. But that was because I never let myself get close enough to those people to, to feel their wrath or, or their insanity or, or whatever it was, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, I made sure to steer clear of that, you know, uh, I, you, when there's some people you can look at, right. And you know, that they're insane, you know, that they have no respect for, uh, civility or the law, you know, like for me, you walk around like, like somebody, for instance, they come in my gym and they tell me I'm a piece of shit, right? I don't punch them in the fucking face because I don't want to go to jail, you know, but you can look at certain people and you just know this guy, he is marching to the beat of his own drum and cares nothing about the law or whatever it is. Right. And, uh, you know, he had, he had his, uh, wife in the gym all the time and very, you know, hot lady or, or whatever. And she'd wear like the Brazilian, um, outfits, the, the workout outfits that would just highlight her attributes. But sometimes guys would say something, I fucking kept my head down and looked at the fucking floor. Cause you could just see the, the, the eye in this guy that he just like, if you cross him or he got you looking, maybe you get, you get socked one clean time. Now, nothing like that ever happened, but I just always had a fear that something like that would happen. And, it was uh, on a tape. But I, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the guy just looks like a killer. The guy's in the UFC, just like killing people too, you know? And um, yeah, that, 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 that was crazy. I don't know that he was part of ATT when that moment happened or if he had already uh, left. I can't, I think I can't that was exactly. The that was maybe that was the re- reason I can't remember, but yeah. I remember like training with, with him. Like he was very good in the gi. Like a lot of these MMA guys, they're jujitsu. Maybe they had roots in jujitsu, but once they get into MMA, they, uh, they don't do jujitsu so good, or they put the gi on and they just are trash. And I just remember like, he was a good training partner. He, like he was a lot bigger than me to a fiber, but I got to roll with him a few times. And he was sharp in the gi. I think he was a Hobinho guy or Hobson Mora guy. I think that's who he got his black belt under. A very good gi grappler. When, when you think about him, you think about his striking or, you know, that he was just an assassin as far as top game on the ground. Very good guard. Very talented. So let, let me add, you, you've been a top team. You said you were there 12 years. So Yeah, like you, on, on site. I'm still a top team guy forever. You know what I mean? But, like, you. I was on site there. Yeah. So, so we need, we need, we got it down to like a top three, but we need you to put them in order for us here. So the craziest, is it Munson? Is it Tiago? Is it Hector Lombard? I mean, or is it an X factor? Is there another guy there that we're missing? Help yeah. us out. I, I'll just say there's no other X factor that you're missing, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I would hate that, that to be the, the, the fact that you just said those three means that I didn't have to, and that's it. We're just going to move on. <laughs> you value your life. Yeah, they're, they're all much yeah. bigger than you, too. I understand. I like all those guys as far as just like a, like this type of platform. Like, I don't know. 
I don't know all of those guys like on a deep level, um, friendly level, like mixed martial arts level. Again, never let myself get too close. I don't know their hopes and dreams or, you know, I don't go to summer cookouts with their kids, but you know, I, I like those guys. They're, they're all right. You know? Yeah. We had, uh, we had Dennis Hallman on <clears throat> first off, like Aaron Riley comes in at the very end of his interview we go, we just say, hey, tell us about Jeff Monson. He tells us some of these stories that had us for like, it was the goodbye portion of the interview. It extended the interview about another 45 minutes. Then we get yeah. Jeff on and he just not only admits to everything, but just goes, he adds to it. Go, oh, yeah, no, it was oh, much worse wow. actually. And oh, Dennis yeah, Hallman, yeah. Dennis Hallman at the very end of his interview with us says, yeah, he used to shoot urine into his his bladder so he could pass your uh, you know, piss test for the state. I heard that that he had like it was called the wizard, and it was like no, a fake no. a fake he, dick that had a that had a uh, like a colostomy bag or something attached to it, and you would pull this dick out, and it had a tube that ran into a plastic bag, and it would have clean urine in the bag. So when these guys like came that you'd squeeze the, the dick and the, and the urine would come up and it wasn't his. I heard that. I, I can't confirm that. He admitted to it. He fought a UFC yeah. title for wearing that. Yeah. That's wow. why I consider, I think, I think Munson really, I, I think I'm going to put Jeff number one here because you ask Hector Lombard, it's like, Hey, what happened with, you know, uh, Josh Barnett? And he'd be like, ah, you know, nothing, nothing really happened. You don't want to talk about it. But I'm there was no like bad, a, there was it. nothing Munson didn't want to talk about. He was like, "Yeah, that happened. Yeah, it's true." So that's but, just uh, my personal uh, opinion. Hell yeah, hell yeah, Miguel. I, but there's just like that old saying, like what happens in the gym stays in the gym. Like that's more. And if you have a normal gym, the only thing that could be happening is just the sparring, right? And that so like you don't talk about it because like it doesn't matter who wins in training or loses in training or, or whatever. But. Uh, you know what? I would just say, like, what happens in the gym stays in the gym also goes for what actually happened in the gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Aaron Riley's like, yeah, he punched Jay-Z one time. You know, Hector Lombard punched, you know, no reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, you rolled with a couple guys. We, we've mentioned them. Uh, thoughts on Clay Guida? I love Clay Guida, man. Like, this guy is – standing the test of time and like how do you uh it was uh, he's always been a very charismatic guy one of those people that like you're proud to say like that guy's my friend or or you or even if you're not friends you want to say that you guys are friends because not because he has clout but because his personality is just the kind of guy that you want to be associated with you know um positivity uplifting not only is he very skilled at what he does but uh, what do you, what do you call like a, he's a chameleon in a way. Like he's, he's such a well-rounded person. He can float between different types of crowds or crews and still belong in, in those groups. So I, I like clay a lot as a person. Um, of course, he's a great fighter. You can't say enough about the things that he's accomplished and the types of wars that he's been in, how he keeps finding a way to push, push, push. And, and the ways that he's lined himself up for success and in a, in a business type of way, is just like, good for you, dude. Good for you. I, I know you traveled uh, to train with the Diaz brothers. What was that experience yeah. like? Yeah, we did a couple camps there. Um, uh, we, I think for a couple of my UFC fights, I did like a mini camp with the Diaz brothers because me and Nate were on the same card. 
And then we went out to help Nick train for Carlos Condit, kind of like a similar body type. We were smaller, but uh, that's where like Joe Schilling had first started sparring with uh, Nick, but we went to help Nick out there. Just like one of those friendships you, you, you maintain. Maybe you don't see these guys all the time, but when you do, like if you're in the same city, you link up and we try to go out there. We train, like, you know, when we were going there, we, we bounced around. We went to the boxing gyms they were training at. We went to, uh, I think it was Antioch where Caesar school is. Then we go to the Diaz Belair schools that we went to the one in Stockton. Then we went to the one in Lodi. Did, did then, you box um, with Andre Ward? No. Okay. No, they were, there was a couple boxing gyms that, that they go to, but one was the one where Andre Ward went to, but they had another one that they would did that, that was a little closer to their house. That's where I went to. Did um, you stay with them or did you crash at the gym? No, I stayed, we stayed with them. What was that experience like? It was cool. It was just like, honestly, it's just like me and Micah. It's like maybe California, of course, California, and there's more weed. But, like, that's not really my thing. But other than, like, the weed, it's just like being at Cole and Micah's house. It's like you play them video games, so they're playing Street Fighter. And in my house, we were playing rock band at all hours of the, the night. Or – you're going to work out. You're coming to eat and recover from working out. You're showering. You're going to work out again. That that's literally all we did, and that's all they did. So it was. I'll tell you a fun a fun story though. Um, uh, but that but overall, like that's there was the environment. You 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 were just working out or recovering between working out. They were literally very dedicated to what they did. Wasn't any partying. Me and Mike didn't give a shit about that anyways. We're trying to win fights. And uh, we had the similar mindset that, like, fighters don't sell tickets. Fighters don't go out and get pink hair and do get, you know, crazy sponsors and do commercials or show up to after parties or pre-party. What you need to do is you need to be training. So, like, we kind of related with that uh, outlook. And so we, we, we did some cross-training with those guys. And um, – but a funny story about what was it like the first trip that we went out there, we've done a couple, like me and Mike had never did anything. We went and did a couple triathlons, some small ones. It was, they're called sprint distance, but we, we went and did those. Well, in between one and the other, we were outside their house and they were downstairs or they had all gone to lift weights at like 10 o'clock at night, or they were downstairs already at home. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about, it, I think that they that Nick was home, but Nate was lifting weight, something like that. But we hear a pop, 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 and me and Mike are upstairs, like we're in the uh, where they're we'll call it like the guest loft or where we're we're in like a living area, and it's like Nick and Nate, and he had a couple of friends, and their their mom I think was staying with them, and it was like a Nick had had some success, and and he'd gotten them this like five or six bedroom house, and uh, here, you know, and psh, psh, like glass shattering. And like, Mike was like, what was that? And I'm just like typing on the, my computer. I'm like, I don't know, probably somebody shot something or, or whatever. And like, we, Mike was like, for real? So we get up, we like look through the blinds and you can see like this guy like running away or whatever. He had, taking a baseball bat to this, the truck that was Nick's neighbor, boom, boom. And then 
he shot the car, like the truck. He just shot the truck up. And like, I want to say it was a cul-de-sac, but uh, it was within, I could see it, you know? And then I just went, sat back down and I went back to getting on the, the computer, you know, like I'm just disconnected. And then Michael's like, oh, oh man, that's crazy. I'm like, yeah, dude. And I'm just like, we're watching movies and I'm on the computer. And the next morning I'm looking for those guys like Nick and Nate, but they're outside and I walk outside and they're talking with the neighbor. It's sunny outside. And the neighbor's like, damn, dude. And, and Nick's like walking back to the door. And, and Nick's like, man, somebody fucking shot his car up, his truck up. I'm like, yeah, dude, me and Micah saw that shit last night. And Nick was like, why didn't you call the cops? And I'm like, <laughs> I, just, I was just like, I thought that's just what happened in Stockton. <laughs> You're too gangster for Stockton, bro. Bro, I, I, I mean, like, I just, I just was like, I, oh, that's just what happens here. Like, I, I didn't, I wasn't like in fear, like, oh, you know, like, oh, I should call the cops. Gunshots went off. I'm just cr- watching the movie and like, pop, pop, pop. Like, like I, yeah, I don't know the Diaz here. brothers, but I'd be afraid to like bring the cops over to their house too. Like, you know, it's yeah, like, is that? I don't know. I, you know, they might be kosher with it because sometimes they surprise you. But I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I think you're right. Well, well, well like. It happened. I just was like, oh, I just thought it was what happened here. Like I, I was like more of a out of like a cultural type of respect. Like I'm not gonna, you know, be a snitch or like, but but like I can see that like people and sometimes you need to call the police. I love the police, but sometimes sometimes if it's your not your business, you should mind your own business, right? And like let don't people, get hurt. And I could nobody I could see we saw. It's not like he shot somebody or somebody was in the car. We could clearly see this guy just vandalizing this vehicle. And I was like, oh, it looks like that's what they do here. You know, and so I just went back to minding my own business. So, so Cole, <laughs> when we interviewed Brian Garrity, he goes, I got a crazy Diaz brother story. And we're like, OK, well, what's up? He goes, Nate got a new car from a dealership. He was so happy. He got a brand new car. I fly out there and he comes to pick me up. And he's in, we're in like a minivan, like, you know, just kind of like an old minivan. I just figured he'd want to show off his car. So I said, hey, Nate, where, where's, where's your car at? And he goes, well, what had happened was somebody thought it was my neighbor's car and they shot it up. So that neighbor lost cars regularly. <laughs> and Nate had this old car like this. I don't remember if it was like a 1980 Civic or if it was like a Geo Metro. I want to say it was like a, I, I can't remember, but it was like, I feel like a hatchback view. I remember us riding by the car or an Accord, an old Accord, but I could see us like we rode by as like, that was my car. Like, and he, he somehow found like somebody within the neighborhood to like sell it to, you know, I was like, damn, dude, that thing got shot up. He's like, yeah, I sold it. shot. Up. <laughs> Hey, I got I got a little more technical questions here as we wind down because, you know, I, I, first of all, pleasure to meet you. And I've noticed throughout the conversation you you're good with names and you're also good with technique guys from yeah, Jacaray yeah. to Hobson Mora. You're wearing a Marcelo Garcia shirt. You talked about Master Laborio. Why don't you give me? I'm gonna ask you for another top three. How about your top three jujitsu guys? If we were talking about ability, I would probably say 
Liborio, Bruno Malfacini, and Marcelo Garcia. Wow. Guys, not, not my top three of who I watch on videos, but the top guys I have rolled with, I think that I think those would be my top three. Okay. Yeah. Um, he, who said Aaron Riley said he saw Liborial fold Jeff Monson. I can't even imagine what that looks like. I've seen Liborio fold up a lot of people, 40 something years old, walk on the mat with a top team hat and some cargo shorts and a polo button up, pull his car keys out of his shorts, pull his flip flops off. And cause somebody needed a round and he gave it to him like that. And just, man, sometimes it's like you're humbled and sometimes you're humiliated, you know? And like, I feel like sometimes a lot of people he trained with probably got humiliated, you know? Wow. Wow. All right. What about a roommate, Mike Brown? A roommate, he was a great roommate for me. Like this guy let me stay on his kitchen floor on an air mattress while Benji Raddick and uh, Aaron Riley were the, uh, the other people who had actual bedrooms. And I, when I first got a top team, like I had, I, I just found a college to go to that took a late application and I could pull out some student loans so I could live somewhere to train. Like I had no plans to like be something, but like I had, <laughs> how do you go move to South Florida if you have no money? You know, like you don't have any money. You don't have any credit. You're, you don't have anything, but you're going to make it happen. You just find a college pull out some student loan money and you just live on campus and you drive to train. Like, that's what I did, but it was summertime. So it's like time to go home. Right. So I just asked Mike if I could just stay on the air mattress on the kitchen floor or whatever. And, and he was like, I'll, let me talk to it with Benji and uh, Aaron. I saw Aaron at the gym. I never saw Aaron at, at his house. Like he always stayed in the room and then uh, Benji was cool with it. So I, they had like a table. I would just break down the kitchen table, set up my air mattress, sleep on the kitchen floor, deflate my air mattress and put the, the kitchen table back up for poker night or for whatever it was. But Mike was, uh, for me, I thought he was the man. Like I, I, uh, I never had to live with him for like a year or two years, but when he gave me a full summer, I was always grateful for that. That's really cool. And what about Brett Pickett? Pickett? What about Pickett? Uh, you 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 rolled with him. I'm assuming you guys used to work out together, correct? Oh yeah. Did you guys ask me if I roomed or rolled with Mike Brown? Well, I, I said your roommate because I knew you lived with him because he. Had oh yeah, you yeah. In our interview. Well, my, oh well, you want to talk about you want to talk about rolling? Mike Brown probably has messed me up more more than anyone else at Top Team in Top Team history. Like I had got so many rounds of training with that guy. I never won one fucking round. I barely ever mounted an offense. And he just crushed me all the time, you know? Um, and, uh, but Pickett was always great. I love Pickett. Awesome guy. Uh, always gave me good sparring. Always gave me good sparring. You know, I, I sparred with him a lot more than we just like did regular uh, grappling, you know, but we did a lot of MMA sparring together. It was always good, good, good goes. Mike, I think you're on mute. Yeah. Real nice guy. Pickett, uh, he, he did one of these with us as well. We did his cage rage years, and, man, hell of a nice guy. 
Yeah, and I, all the all the best to him and the success that he's doing right now. I know he started up his own academy here past like year or two years, something like that. So hope he's, he still keeps killing it. Cool. Miguel? Paul, definitely nice to meet you. Uh, man, you fought on AFC 19. I was the matchmaker for the first 15, so I missed you by a little bit. And uh, I'm kind of feeling like like I missed out on something there, man. Uh, very nice <laughs> to meet you. And uh, yeah, too, definitely a terrific interview. All right, good, awesome. Thank Thanks you for your time, guys. brother. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.